Hello and welcome to the Little Minds Big Ideas podcast, the weekly show with the Early Years Network. And in this episode, we are going to be talking all about social learning and the importance of social learning for young children in their early years. We are indeed. Um, so yeah, shall we dive straight in? Shall I guide us through this one? Go on. So social learning, there is going to be a blog post coming out at some point over the next week or so um, talking about the same subject. But I just wanted to jump on to this podcast this week to talk about the role of social learning and the importance of social learning because I think sometimes it can be, it can sound a bit whimsical, can social learning, the idea of uh, it's not actually proper formal education, is it? You've got yeah. a, and And we in, in, in Britain especially, I don't know about other nations, but have it sort of ingrained into us over the past 100 odd years of, of our educational system where children have to learn by the via a teacher standing at the front of a of a yeah. of a classroom telling us information or sat looking through textbooks of information writing notes and trying our best to memorize for an exam that we have looming at oh some point God. yes i'm sure that's how 90% of us probably more learn educationally at school because yeah. that is generally how how it's done in this the nation norm isn't it? Of it, yeah. yeah and unfortunately that has crept its way down from secondary schools into primary schools and even there is notes of it in early years we you know we have our our next steps that we measure children by we have this curriculum that's almost handed down to us it's labeled as statutory or it's not in some cases with um the seven areas of learning and children's ability even in early years is measured it, it's it, they don't do exams no but they have progress reports and they have checks yeah and there are things they're measured against and the problem with the, the, there's a difficulty here isn't there because in education as a whole primary school and secondary school you've got to come out with some sort of qualification some sort of measurement grade against your name um, because that's what employment look for that's what next future education universities look for isn't it it's interesting though because going off off slightly, when I um, did my HR qualification, we talked about what is it that as an employer you'd be looking for, and um, I, because of my early years background, was bringing in that actually all the attributes that people are looking for, like team player, able to communicate well, yeah. time keep, yep. et cetera, et cetera, are things that stem from the early years and that. If you are not exposed to, it's a bit like we talked about last week about risky play. Yeah. If you're not exposed to those things, you never learn them. So actually, it's skills that children learn and build right from mm. from babies and moving through their early years that future employers will look for. But unfortunately, it seems that actually, like you said, that the 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 label or the grade that they come out with is more important than the social skills that really they should be yeah. are measured against. And it's like we touched upon last week when we talked about uh i briefly touched on technology didn't i and talked about yeah. we're actually in the early years we should be focused on the development of cognitive skills because it's, it's uh, yeah. yeah the physical skills but it's things like being able to socially work in groups it's like it's being able yeah. to have good concentration and the cognitive skills from that point of view so you've got good executive function skills from a brain point of view and you learn them in a, in, a, in a variety of different ways. And one of the ways we're going to talk about today is obviously about social and the, and the elements of social learning. Um, as, I was, as I was saying earlier, you, we've now got to the stage in early years where we're actually measuring children against documents. And as a yeah. result, we've got rushed and not, I don't think, good learning that happens all the time. We're rushing to get to the next thing, to the next thing, next thing. Now, there's two foundations, I believe, and we've seen in research and we've seen in studies that develop good learning and one of those things is is social learning we are social beings and especially in early years we yeah. learn so much better through high quality interactions and the ability to communicate and talk with each other and secondly it's repetition so it's doing things over and over and over again yeah. and if you're introducing something to a child boom i've seen little timmy's done that tick it off he's never going to do that again no, he's always so busy <laughs> so many kids called timmy these days so i feel like i can say it because i don't know it timmy <laughs> Um, but do you know what I mean? So yeah. we're rushing to get things done. We're rushing to get to the child's next step. When in reality, let's maybe aim to do half the amount of things we're trying to get children to do and just focus on the fundamentals. Can they yeah. concentrate? Can they act and do things independently? Are they curious about the world around them and the objects around them? What are their schemas? What inclinations do they show to wanting to do things? It, it generally doesn't matter if they can write their name when they get to primary school, if they can 
count to a certain number yeah because it doesn't matter in the same way it doesn't actually matter if they can remember everything about henry the eighth because that's what they've done an exam on in secondary school divorce beheaded died divorce beheaded survived but i remember that again forever it's not (laughs) what we do in schooling system doesn't actually embed true great learning no i can't i can remember hardly anything about my um uh dissertation and the work I did at university all about the Bosnian war and stuff can't remember any of the dates but when I went into the exam did dissertation I could remember them off by heart yeah but it wasn't ingrained meaningful learning and in the same way actually that's what we need to be aiming for in the early years because they only get one shot in those first five years so we have to embed principles of 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 knowledge in terms of of social learning social beings and like we touched upon cognitive skills they're the things that matter yeah They'll learn the numbers and bits and pieces like that later on. I do think that that is something that we get fixated on. Um, when I first came into early years, it was, are they ready for school? Mm. Yeah. And through the years, that conversation has changed in that, are they independent? Are they inquisitive? Are they curious? Can they listen? Can they sit on this carpet and be engaged and stay focused and things like that? So I feel like it's getting into, I want to say even... I want to say the education system, but actually we are part of the education system. Whether people want to believe us or not, we are very much part of the education system. Um, But into primary schools, I'll say, that actually those reception teachers are pushing for the the right things that they want to see rather than can they write their name, can they count to 10, Yeah, can they name all these shapes. It's actually... Are they good at making friends? Are they confident to talk to other people? Are they, like I said, independent? Those are the things that actually children should be leaving their early years settings with those skills. And I say to a lot of the preschool um, educators that I know is that I would rather a child have the confidence to come up and talk to me when I enter the room and show me what they're doing and be excited to share that experience with me than be ready for school because they can write their name and count to 10. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's the children I want us to produce to go to school. And, and the thing is, it is a big, it's a bigger scale picture. This I'm not actually here today to talk about no. the landscape of education, but it's a bigger scale picture than just the fault of the teachers because even in secondary schools, teachers are given this massive syllabus that oh, gosh, actually, yeah. I don't think you even have time to cover within an academic year. no. But they've got to cover it all. And the only way to cover it all, unfortunately, is to ram it down the throat of the students and saying, you've got to do page one to 12 today and then 12 to... And it's just continuous. It's monotonous. And I actually saw a video on, it might have been Instagram or TikTok, from a uh, astrophysicist called Neil deGrasse Tyson. And he's quite famous within the field. Um, and he was funny enough talking about when children leave for the summer, is the, the American thing, isn't it? When they're walking down the hall and they throw their bags mm. and papers in the air and go, woohoo! We're, you know, summer's out, you know, school's out for summer, blah, blah, blah. Why are we in a scenario where t- children are actively celebrating not learning for... Ended of learning. I mean, how yeah. sad is that? You know, wouldn't it be... Imagine how different the world would be if kids were actually being marched out of school crying because they weren't going to get the opportunity to learn again for, yeah. for six weeks. It's it's so sad that learning is seen as as a really negative thing, a really shit thing in the eyes of, of, of children. I mean, we are kind of shifting in the early years now because the statutory guidance or sorry, the Ofsted guidance is saying that they don't want to see paperwork after paperwork on children's development. They don't no. need to see anything written. Um, and there's the argument for and against for that. But it does feel like we're making some progress in that. I remember when I first started, each child had a book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you had to write down two things a week yeah. on that child and what they were doing. Two things a week. Yeah, yeah. It's a lot. Yeah. That is a, a lot of things in a busy preschool when you've got 20 key kids. That's ridiculous about of And then you think, hang on, I've not spent any time with the children because I'm trying to the, write all the things down. So I think we're getting in the right direction, but I still don't think that the interactions with the children is seen as a priority. No. So... Or the why, but it's so important. Let's get stuck into today's Sorry, we've gone, we've gone a bit of a... Yeah. But no, I think, I, think, I think that conversation premised, prefaced it well in terms of what is the best form of children to learn and what is the best form for brain development in terms yeah. of education. There is a time and a place for children to have to demonstrate cognitive skills in terms of being able to concentrate and focus and all those things. And... 
unfortunately, the way our schooling and education system is set up, you have to demonstrate your intelligence and the best, no, not the best, the most effective way and the easiest way to do that is through an exam and sitting exam because it's, it's less timely, less costly, and it's simple to do. You just have to have a, a hall and each and student gets some paper. Some exactly. <laughs> and that carries through then in terms of all the education. So if we're talking about effective ways, it, it goes all the way back now to the early 1900s with Albert Bandura, Lefigotsky, um, Bronfenbrenner, people like that, where they hit on the idea that human beings, specifically we're going to be talking about children, learn best in social environments. Yeah, they do. There's been tons of work done in terms of ch people and children spe specifically learning um, communication language skills. They often tie communication language skills to this concept of the social brain. We understand that. We have loads of literature, loads of research on that. But I personally, and a lot of the research shows that it, it probably stretches further. Yeah. Our ability to learn is far more advanced and, and it's greater when we're in social environments, we're communicating with people than it is just sitting in, in isolation and, and demonstrating cognitive skills and, and learning solidarity almost or mm. from someone. So first of all, we're going to split the idea of social learning to make it, because it's a very abstract concept. We're going to take it into three areas and they are, can you remember them? Observation. Observation. No, the second one's gone. I always want to say intimidation, but it's not intimidation. <laughs> it's um, observation, it's imitating, and it's interaction. Interaction, yeah. So they're the three areas. Imitation, it got me. And observation and imitation, not intimidation, <laughs> imitation, they are very closely linked because they're, yes. they're very similar process. And a similar process in terms of if you were going to learn from me in terms of observation, you're, it's a one-way flow of information. You're observing me, so the information is coming from me and me only. Um, in imitation, imitation is one way, but it has an action on your end. Yeah. Because you're watching me again. The information's going one way and then you're trying it. Whereas with interaction, interactive social learning, two -way it's a two-way flow of thing because we're talking. So as much as it seems like I'm giving you information, we're having a conversation, so too is information coming back to me. Yeah. So there is more dialogue. And again, as we're going to get onto, the, the brain lights up way more through that. So if we start with observational learning, because... I don't want this conversation to seem like we have um, we have learning with people and we have learning from people. And this sits in learning from people. I don't want it to seem like we're just slandering the concept of learning from people. <laughs> it's a really, really strong thing. And, and Bandura's work, his social learning theory, took a lot from this in terms of the idea of role models and us having role models in life that we watch, we look at, and we perceive the good and the bad from other people's actions. And that can yeah. be teachers or it can be peers. You know, if you think about a busy preschool classroom, children learn from other children just as much as they learn from the teacher. Oh, yes. And that can be good and bad behaviours. Oh, yes. <laughs> so if we're talking about observational learning and we're starting, it's a really, really strong concept in baby rooms. Yeah, because at that age, there's not much conversation coming back and forth. No. Um, we get children, they watch everything that's going on. Um, and I think it's the role of the practitioner to make sure that the, the children in a baby room or of that age have lots to observe. Yeah. So it's the case of um, making lots of eye contact, being able to show children different sounds and shapes and colours and things like that to make sure that it's there for the observing, for them to absorb all of that information. Yeah. yeah. And it's like what we often discuss about Sally Featherston, don't we? Yeah. In terms of, um, in her book in, about interactions, she wrote about the idea of serve and return. And that's a really important concept for any child, but especially in the baby rooms, because a lot of them could be nonverbal mm -hmm. or yet certainly haven't grasped skills to have fluid dialogue and conversation. So serve and return from Sally Featherstone was a very simple concept in terms of much like tennis. When you hit a ball back and forth, you serve it and then it returns. It's that back and forth between a, a caring and nurturing adult or, or carer uh, with a child so it can be something as small as just a little touch and then you've got eye contact and then from that eye contact they might babble and you might make communication and it builds that communication bit by bit that constant like a rally in tennis so it's going back and forth yes. back and forth back and forth um, and it's about that unfortunately like tennis is the winner at the end you can't volley at a baby but normally yeah. if, if um, someone's screaming for a long time and then, it's, and then the screaming stops does stop Feel like a win. That sounds like more like a game of rugby than a game of tennis. Well, yes, yeah, a bit more violent. 
But so then we're starting to see observational learning coming out. So it's all about the child observing something and learning from that observation. And, and what they could learn is endless. It could be physical skills. You could see another child taking their first steps. They could see an adult walking. Yeah. And that can often be a source of frustration for a child. Who <laughs> can't move yet. Yeah. yeah. We've also got the concepts of social learning. They learn things about this in society and what they see mum and dad doing at home, maybe. Ethnic backgrounds can, can, can sort of persuade that. And it's a bit from, from Bronfenbrenner here with his rings of, of, of society. Yes. When we talk about observational learning, I'm sure anyone in the industry has heard a child swear. That is a form of observational learning because when a child swears in context, I had a very interesting conversation today, actually, where a child in a, probably younger than you'd think they were, said, oh, shit, in context because the book was ripped. Oh, shit. Oh, shit. Yeah, oh, shit. Um, but something's gone wrong and there's a problem. So the response that that child has heard is, oh, shit. It all links together. Um and not through speech, but a child who is just beginning role play and is starting to sort of develop those understandings of what they watch people do at home. So a lot of the time, the first thing a child will, will do with any shape is put it to their ear and talk on the phone. Mm. Because a lot of us now as adults, it we talk on the phone. Yeah, it's not that up. anymore, is it? It's no. not that. No, it's this. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of this and yeah. swipes because actually that's the observational learning that a child will have. Um, someone I used to work with, her son would watch on her phone and if a notification came down, he would know yeah, yeah. to swipe it away because yeah. he's watched mum or dad or whoever lean over and swipe it. Yeah. Doesn't need them to do it anymore. He's observed that learning and he's learned it from his parents that actually that's what he needs to do. Yeah. So it comes into it all the time. Yeah, it's massive. It's really powerful. And it is really, really powerful. But it falls under that category of learning from. It's not learning with. No, exactly. What it is. Yes. It's all learning from. It's a one-way direction of, of, of learning, really. And it's the same for communication language. At first, it absolutely starts with observation. You're observing mum, dad, grandparents, practitioners communicate. And that's why we talk about in, in baby rooms, language is so important. Music's so important. Yes. Anything verbal is so important. Pitch of your voice, everything yeah. they hear. Yeah. Because that's what they're hearing for the first time, isn't it? They're hearing the, that beat. They're hearing the melody. They're hearing the tones of voice. They're pin up, picking up on those patterns. They won't understand the words at first, not even close, but it's still that vibrant, um, it's that frequency and the vibrations. Yeah. Which is what talking is. It's also that learning that the person in front of you is can be useful to you. Hmm. So a baby will cry out because it needs something and it knows that if if it does that, you will give it a response. Yeah. And that's the social observations that come with it is that actually I'm hungry, I'm going to cry for it because I know that that person over there is useful to me and they will give me something, give me something in return. Yeah, because yeah. you can tie in social learning as well massively to, it's actually probably the pinnacle of everything we're going to talk about in terms of developing regulation skills and yeah. well-being because in that first year two years of a baby's life observational learning is actually massively independent on am i safe yeah am i protected of course yeah am i am i in, a, in an environment of people who are going to care for me that's what they're observing because suddenly yeah if, do i feel safe in this in these people's company yeah. yeah because i don't want to go into this this is another podcast topic completely today but if we start talking about aces and adverse child um it, situations and, 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 and cruelty and toxic stress and things like that, then we're going to fall down a scenario of children suddenly observing negative things. And they're looking gonna, for that danger. Yeah. yeah. And then we've seen all the science that in it, what happens in the brain where suddenly their amygdala responses is heightened. They get hijacked more easily because they're looking for, they're constantly feel under threat. They're looking for that. So suddenly we're painting a picture where because of what's happened to the child and, and the, the abuse and neglect, whatever they may have suffered, has caused them to observe negativeness. That's what they see from an adult, yeah. isn't it? That's what they associate. That's all they know. It's their environment. So they come to them, perceive that all the time. And the negative hill, we're then going to roll down what happens in their lives. Mm. And then especially if we don't help the problem, i.e. they get to school and we're actually 
not understanding of what they're doing. We're just thinking, oh, that child's acting up. He's being naughty. He's doing this on purpose. When actually he's coming from a heightened response of his emotional, he's been emotionally hijacked and all this is happening. Yeah. I mean, that's a consequence that consequence throws me to that. Um, I was lucky enough to do some training with with Ben who came, not, not yourself, Ben Kington Hughes who came on season one of the podcast and he, in this training, talked about a little boy who was lining up, and I want to say it was reception or year one, I can't remember. And he, there was a box of torches on the floor and he picked up the torches and the teacher and senior teachers in the school shouted at this child, put that down, do not touch this. The child was just doing his instinctive... Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Oh, what's that? I want to touch it. Of course. And um, the child felt... it. I don't know if it was a backed, it, the child was backed into a corner basically and went into fight or flight mode and just started to sort of growl at the <laughs> teachers because he was so, that yeah. they were shouting at. So Ben actually picked a torch up as well and said, well, I've touched a torch, are you going to shout at me like that? Yeah, to say, hang on a minute, the, the position that you're putting that child in and now they've observed what you do when, yeah. when they've done something wrong. Whereas the simple conversation of, oh, we're not ready to touch those yet. Do you want to pop it back? And when we get inside the classroom, we'll get them out. It's human decency. Would have done it, yes. But that child has now, like you said, observed how those adults respond when he supposedly has done something wrong when actually he's just worked, just gone on his instinct. Yeah, he's followed his innate curiosity yeah. and, and what's led to his innate curiosity being bollocked. Yeah. And, and, and really what's school all about? School should be all about trying to foster that innate curiosity and instead our actions and what we're doing is actually stifling. Yeah. And that's, that's kind of that's a, yeah, that's a story that came to mind because I don't know, and it's the same in early years. Maybe is that things are so busy and everything's so rushed. So it, the quicker option is to say, "Don't do that." But we're not actually explaining to the child why they can't do that. They're just a, they're the, that social learning from that is that right? Okay, so if I do anything wrong, that teacher's gonna shout or raise the voice, or I'm gonna feel like this every single time. Yeah, so. and. And uh, it was a, a study done by um, a person called Ike. Ike, I think there's a collection, he has some colleagues as well, where they looked at um, brain development within the early years of children. Um, and they did a, a, it was a, it was a big study in terms of looking at how children best learn, what their most optimal forward development was. And within some of those studies, they talked about social learning. It was looking at social learning as being the driving point for cognitive early years development. Um, and one of the biggest parts of that was, we're going to talk about interactions later, but one of the biggest mechanisms they pulled out of it was sensitivity and attunement. I think they called it something else, but in effect, it was attunement. Yeah. And having that attuned member of staff, and that's sort of like what you're talking about now, an attuned member of staff wouldn't have berated a child no. for simply following their curiosity. No. You just wouldn't do that. And that's what provides children, observationally, with their structure and their safety net. And it provides them with a lot of what um, Emmy Pickler describes and talks about in terms of them yeah. having that safe, secure base. Because once they have that safe, secure base and they're comfortable in the environment they're in, they're then in an ability, they have, the, they have the ability to then go and explore and follow their curiosity and not feel like they're going to get berated and do things. And that's what sparks learning and that's what triggers this incredible knock-on effect of them feeling safe, feeling happy, yeah. secure, that they know they can go and make mistakes, do things and... It's going to be safe. It's going to be all right. Exactly. It's the same for adults. If you're at work and you're constantly fearing of if you do one little thing wrong, the boss is going to bring you in and give you a bollocking and it's toxic and that's a horrible place to be. You're not going to work your best. You're going to no. do whatever you have to do yeah. to get through the day without causing anything. That's how I feel here. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas if you want your staff to be creative... And, and do the most and do their best. You've got to be aware that sometimes they're going to make mistakes, but they've got to feel comfortable in an environment of making mistakes. Yeah. We all do. We all make errors. We all have poor judgment at times when we make mistakes. Yeah, it's having the people around you, having the infrastructure around you to actually know you've got the safety to make those mistakes. And, 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 and that will foster curiosity and that creation of, of ideas and stuff. I think when you say about attunement, and, and I think from a practical point of view, in an early year setting or childminder, nanny, whatever you may be, it's knowing the child as an individual mm. and being attuned into that child specifically because we we know that every child is unique and there shouldn't be a one-size-fits-all policy in terms of how that child is going to learn. No. Um, 
So when we talk about attunement and that social social side of learning, it's that actually there are children in our settings at two, three years old who have got additional needs, mm -hmm. who will learn differently. Their brains yeah, are, are in a position, they, they don't learn an atypical no. way. And it's actually helping other children understand that as well. And that's sometimes a difficult conversation, but it's that, oh, that child is doing this. We know they are. We need you to show them because they learn a little bit differently from you. And making them aware that not every single person around them is going to be yeah. the same. And it's a, being an adult and being attuned, that attunement into the individual. We all know those children that cannot sit still at yeah. mealtimes. Why are we forcing them to sit still for a prolonged period of time to bring them to that stress level? Yeah. Then the argument is what well, everyone else has to. That's fine. If that if the other children are capable of sitting at the table, if the other child has eaten their lunch and then has to get up, they've still sat down to eat. They've still followed that social norm of learning that this is a mealtime and this is where I sit for a mealtime. But in their mind, mealtime's over. I've finished eating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's getting that balance of we want to make sure children follow those social norms, but actually... Are we, are the other children around them and the other adults around them have the understanding that that child isn't actually capable yeah. of doing the rest of that? If that does that make sense? I think we all have our own story. I mean, because I remember when I was in school, I hated science because science for me was the most textbook. Mm. Teacher yeah. stands at the front of the class and just lectures you, and it all went over the top of my head. I did it to GCSE and then and then shoved it in the bin. But now, if you talk to me about astrophysics or the, the atomy of a brain watch and how that the, works. Watch the video, you can see my face <laughs> through that. I absolutely love it. And it, it's one of the things that excite me the most. And it just goes to show how much school and education like? gets it wrong. Brian Cox. Brian Cox, yeah. Like I mentioned Neil deGrasse Tyson earlier. There's, there's tons of them, but it, it's just funny, isn't it? How, though it's something I'm really interested and passionate about, at school I'd never had that interest because no. of the way it was delivered bored the hell out of me and as a result of a, of, of a child being born born bored what happens they switch off you switch the off. brain switches yeah. off they, they they want to do something else and they look for other and if you actually probably talk to my teachers the ones that were probably said I was the most naughty child in school was probably the science teachers because that's where I, you just didn't care well, but, but, but it, it's, you didn't want to be there you yeah. weren't learning anything it wasn't value to you at no. the time no and so then that's where we go to the next stage where we talk about we, we, we leave alone the idea of observational learning and we actually didn't talk much about um, imitating. Um, imitating sort of comes with just sort of the, the phone and, But yeah. also when they come into role play and they make a cup of tea. Yeah, yeah, role play is a great one for it. Role play, that imitation is... It, and and um, there's lots of settings where if it's going down for sleeps, everyone has their own way of doing yeah. sleep. But you pat on the back, you rub, you stroke the forehead. Children will imitate that in their role play because they've yeah. watched you do it to other children or with the babies or with their friends and things like that. So I think imitation really comes into play at toddlers and twos because they're starting to find their feet a little And they're investigating more. the world around yeah. them, aren't they? They're, sort of, they're trying to investigate through imitation a lot. Yeah. So I just think it's one of my... my Matt, well, you shouldn't have favourite ages, but twos for me and uh, being two and four, they're my favourites because at two, children still... They're still figuring it all out and they're imitating everything you do so you could start... Mark making in the sand, they're going to watch what you're doing yeah. and join you. I think we we underestimate how new everything is to children. Oh God, yeah, yeah. I think we we do. I think that is a massive underestimate how we how new everything to them is until they've done it or seen it or experienced it. It's, it's new. Yeah, and that's that's crazy when you can when you actually think about it as a statement. You know. Yeah, I mean, somebody once said to me like, "What can I do to help my child?" And it and my response was, "Introduce them, expose them to as many things as you can." Yeah. Show them all of the things you can. Let them be curious. Let them explore the world because they'll never, you'll never get those first times back. The yeah. first time a child does something is so impressionable. The first time they see something, we're getting into the festive season, that first experience of Santa and understanding. You never get that back. No, I'll share it on Monday afternoon, the video with Neil deGrasse Tyson, because one of the things he says at the end of his thing about it's sad that children leave school and are happy about it. But he also mentioned the fact that actually what we want as a society is to have people physically grow up, get smarter in terms of cognitive skills, but 
brain-wise, don't grow up. So you don't lose that curiosity. Yes. Because we we somehow... Do you know who's coming into my mind? Cool. And we discussed Big Brother last week, and I'm really sorry. Um, Yimran. Why? Because in the house, some of them thought she was immature because of the way she was curious about English culture. Oh, right, I see we kind of... But yeah, actually, yeah. she said, I quite like the fact that I've still got that childlike yeah, yeah. brain because everything to me is exciting and new and I want to learn about yeah. it and it's all innocent and in it's all fresh and new. And that's kind of what has just come straight into my head is that maybe we we all kind of lose that. And when you think about the greatest human beings that have walked the planet, they are all incredibly curious curious. <laughs> curious. <laughs> curious. <laughs> curious. They're very they're very curious and they've got incredible imaginations. Yeah. Think about like Albert Einstein. Like if he'd have just accepted that it is what it is and accepted what was out there, <laughs> oh he would have God. never sat in there thinking, well, what about the you know theory of relativity and how does gravity work? He would never have done that yeah. because he would have just thought, yeah, okay, okay I'll accept the norms of what's around now. Yeah. I'm not going to test it any further. I'm not curious to see what happens if I do this or do that yeah, or do that. You're right. The same yeah. like Elon Musk today. Oh, you can't, we can't colonize Mars. Why? Why not? What happens if I build a massive rocket? <laughs> and actually that rocket, when it comes back down, isn't obliterated or destroyed or unusable again. Actually, we can land it in a car parking spot. Well, that'd be brilliant because it would save us hundreds of, of millions. Well, I'm going to give it a go. It's having that innate curiosity and want to do that and a lot of cash. <laughs> it's stressed me out. <laughs> but do you know what I mean? And I think if we all had that sense of curiosity of what if, or I'm going to try it, I'm going to do it, it'd be a better place. But it seems to get ingrained out of the majority of us through the educational process. Yeah. So to get back onto the, the, the third strand and the last strand of social learning, it's interactive learning and it's interaction. And I think for me, uh, I think this is the pinnacle. Um, and it, it's the pinnacle, that's where the study I showed you earlier of Ike, Ike or Ilyak or whatever his name is, he showed um, that actually social learning, if you want the fundamentally the best way to deliver learning, it's through interaction. It's through children communicating and talking. Um, and that's one of the reasons why I think even in early years, we don't do enough of group work and things like that. It's all group projects and uh, things like that. But it's the expectation yeah. of when you get to work, you have the ability, by and large, depending on what your job is, I guess, but most jobs will require the fundamental aspects of your job role will probably be being a team player. In yeah. Group work. As I was saying before, that's when we were talking about the ideal candidates in my HR course, it was can they can they be respectful of others, work in a team, communicate well, et cetera, et cetera. And actually, you, nobody teaches you that in the education system. No. But we're expected to teach children that from a young age and then they, it's not followed through. No. And, and we're seeing now through the studies that are taking place, um, because for, for, for years and years and years, brain development and brain and neuroscience research was fixated on, on what's sort of seen as a single brain view. Yes. Whereas now we're getting to the second person sort of neuroscience approach where we're looking at more widely at the social elements of learning and saying, well, actually, is it just down to a person's ability to concentrate and restore information, retain information? Or is there more at fact, is there more at play here? Is reading the book and being told information the best way of learning? I.e. sitting a child down in preschool and saying, right, I want you to write one to four, three to four to five and building it up that way. Or actually, can we do it through interaction and socially? And what they've found through like hyperscanning and looking at the brain, and we're going to get a bit of science here, but when... when Drop in everybody, <laughs> we're that, ready. It's that passion <laughs> of the podcast. But what we're seeing is through looking at the brain, again, like I always talk about, we can see when it's most excited. We can see when these sparks That's are happening. Work. We can yeah. see when the brain and what parts of the brain are being engaged. And through doing this and um, through mapping it out, we can actually see that when children are engaged with somebody in the physical, we're going to talk a little bit about that in a bit, but when they're engaged with a physical person and they're interacting, so there's two ways of communication there. Yeah. The brain is most elevated and learning takes place the most because as we know, when the brain's active, the brain is learning best and those neurological frameworks are being developed uh, and the neurons are firing from one to the other and information's being passed and over repetition time and time and time again, we're best learning it. So if the brain is most active when we're having conversations like we are now, yeah. as opposed to one of us sat with a book, if the brain is more active, learning's being better embedded. And that's not always the case, unfortunately, as you get older. If we're going to deal with some really complex form of formulas and things like that, you do have to sit in a book and read it, unfortunately. I'm sure doctors and scientists, when they learn how to do major heart surgery, it probably wouldn't be effective just to have a conversation about it. No, but you'd have to observe it. You, you could would. read 
I couldn't read how to do open heart surgery from a book without observing it. And I stand by that the early years qualification is best done through being in a setting rather than act. Yeah. Uh, both routes are fine, but but I personally believe that you can't teach someone childcare from inside a classroom. But do you know what I find? And that's observation I've, learning. I've got no research about this. So I've not seen anything about it. But do you know what I often find when, if you're writing a, a, something for school, let's say when you used to write, um, not for exams, but you know when you attend coursework in. Yeah. Or if you're prepping for like, you had a speech or something you had to do or a training you had to put on. Do you know what I find sometimes talking to someone about it embeds it into your brain yes. yeah. far more than, sometimes you can get, I, I personally can get really flustered with just writing things and doing things and working. Sometimes I need to come away and just talk to you about it. Even if I know you're not actually going to take it in, in terms of, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like we yeah. just have a conversation about it. That, there must be something at play there in terms of it embedding itself into the brain more by you having to communicate it and talk about it. Yeah, it it must slot into the brain and be stored better. And that's what we're finding with the studies that are taking place. So if we bring this to early years now, the aim of early years, if you want to embed, and, and they, a lot of the studies and research at the moment is, is purely focused on, on language and language yeah. development. Um, and, and showing how language, but they have done more studies in places like Japan where they look at when a physical teacher is there as opposed to when a physical teacher is not there. They did they taught them the same subjects, but they had a group of boys, this is in secondary school, and they were just looking from textbooks versus, and they were actually monitoring their brain patterns well, and everything was going on. Yeah. And then they added one where the teacher came in and delivered the lesson and, and, they, and they communicated and talked and they did it in like a group setting based and it showed how much their brains were as opposed to just... It's interesting, so. isn't it? Because as you talk about that, um, I was once asked to leave a sociology lesson because I didn't want to read aloud. About. But then I missed out on yeah. all the learning from that class. The, the teacher asked me to read and I politely said, no, thank you. I, I, you know, I don't like reading out loud. I, uh -huh. I can't... It's something that I struggle to do. And in year 12... You really enjoy drama. It's funny, isn't it? But I'm not reading. No, 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 no. But I'm no. not reading. But if, I, if the book is in front of me and I have to read it out, I really struggle. Yeah. Especially if it's not something I've written down. No, no. So we're reading from a textbook. And Emily, can you read? I'm really sorry. I don't feel comfortable doing that. Okay, we'll get out. Yeah. That Hang on a minute. That's not how I... I'm not going to take that information in because I'm trying to... I'm just reading individual You're words. You're making a mistake. Yeah. Out, yeah, yeah. And... It's interesting because, like you say, when we do group learning, we supposedly learn more. But actually, that's one thing in secondary school that everyone is afraid of doing. But I don't think that is quite... That's not what I mean when I talk about social learning. No, but in terms of like a group situation when you, you bounce ideas off yeah. each other and you talk about it, that's something in secondary school that happens so little yeah. that when it happens, nobody wants to take part in it because everyone's afraid of putting their opinion out and it being wrong. Yeah, yeah. So it's interesting that that's how we learn best and how that our brains react to when actually it's not done enough because yeah. it promotes anxiety and fear into everybody that has to do it. If I ever host a meeting, I never ask everyone to introduce themselves no. until like you ask, oh, what's, what do you think about this? What's your opinion? Does anyone have anything to say? And the old person will confidently stand up, but not everyone enjoys no. joining in like that. No. But it's something that clearly works for interactions and humans to learn yet it has been embedded into us that it's horrific yeah well, does that make sense yeah no you're right and, and one of the things i've not seen a lot of studies on i don't know if there is a lot of studies on there but everything i've ever seen is always about atypical learners yes when we talk about neurodiversity individuals there isn't a lot out there i mean if what happens if as a result of of whatever um, stops them whatever the issue or the case may be what if from that they have social anxiety? What was if they have major social anxiety? Yeah. Then at that point, how do they respond? Is social learning obviously not an option or is it more difficult? So it, it, there is a whole scope of research yeah. that can go on in terms of how human beings and their brains best learn. Because I know we talk about play a lot uh, as, as being a really key driver because that's the mechanism that the body naturally has. But also play in a social environment, I think is so important. And yeah. it'd be interesting to see more and more research going into rather than just looking at the brain as an individual thing and cognitive development, which I think we have a pretty good idea on now. What about the social elements at play and how children learn? And I think to make this podcast a bit a bit more for, for people listening in terms of how they can use it, I think one of the greatest things to start seeing more and more in early years spheres is fostering that idea of cooperation 
the idea of group play and the idea of group communication, group projects. Yeah. Even pitching to children, a group of children a problem, right? How are we going to solve this problem? How are we going to do this? Or the ball's stuck on the roof, right? What are we going to do? Just day-to-day things of problem solving, real life together work, to working together. Yeah. These are all skills that need in work. You know, these are all things we're doing. And I think setting children like little fundamental goals and aims and getting them into groups and project building and project working. There's a lot of ideas of Montessori coming out here and, and yeah. things like that and strands of that form of education. It's, it would just be interesting to see the effects of that. It'd be brilliant to strap like wires onto children and see how their brain's best mm-hmm. rather than just leave them to like... Yeah. But independence plays is, is, is crucial as well. And I think what we're trying to say in this podcast is there's not one right answer. No. But there's definitely a wrong answer in terms of it being purely just, right, I need you to sit down and I need you to draw this. That's an A. Well done. Right, I need you to draw this. That's a B. Well yeah, done. crash yeah. is well done. Right, can you trace that? Yeah, that's a C. We need to get away from that. Yeah. You know. I think when we look at that interaction... And I know we've sort of said when it's back and forth with older children and things. For me personally, if I walk into a room and I can't hear an adult talking and I can't see them observing, waiting to scaffold play, nothing that frustrates me more. Because I, 90% of the time, if I walk into a preschool room, somebody has said hello to me and I wouldn't dream of just ignoring that child and walking through because of my agenda to do other things or what I'm doing, you have to stop and you have to give that child the interaction because that is a lasting memory yeah. of you walking through that room. If a child is with you day in, day out, and you do not interact back to them, they will stop interacting with you yeah. because that you are not giving them... It's observational again, isn't it? That we're yeah. talking again about observation. They've observed that they get ignored by adults. Then eventually so what's the up. point? I'm not going to bother. But it's the same in a baby room. If I walk into a silent baby room, nothing infuriates me more because those children are so impressionable that they are observing, imitating, not intimidating, and interacting. As a child begins to babble, that is them communicating Mm -hmm. with you. Eye contact is communication. Hands in the air for a cuddle, that is communication. And there's nothing that infuriates me more than silent baby rooms because we as the adults have to give that communication we have to talk and narrate mm. and introduce them to so many things and without the social element of that they'll never be exposed and it's the same again when we took into like the preschool and we talk about um meal times the amount of times i've seen people attempt to make meal times a silent, silent. thing so what meal times are the most social moment yeah. in the day the opportunity there for children to be talking communicating language be used but let's get away from just language. You could talk about the mathematical concept. The nutrition levels in the meal. Well, yeah, we can introduce them to nutrition. We can introduce them to understanding the world, different ethnicities, different ways of doing things. Like communicating and interacting and social learning. We keep coming back to but it's so, so important. There's, There's so many no... things you can do with it. It doesn't just have to be communication language, though that is the obvious area to learn from socialness. You can talk about maths. You can talk about the time. You can talk about, talk about, talk, you can talk about so many different things. I think it comes down to as well, and we did receive a question on this, so we'll we'll come back to it, but it's about having the confidence to interact with children well. There's There's no right or wrong way to be in a setting and interact with... No, there is a wrong way, sorry. There's no right... There's no right or wrong way to engage with a child's play because... Each child will do it individually. So the way that you interact with X amount of children and I interact with X amount of children, we're both not doing it wrong as long as we're interacting and we're doing something. But there is a wrong way in not doing it, mm-hmm. if that means. There's a wrong way of doing it. You can overtake and, and take over a child. That's, that's what I mean, though. If you're yeah. engaged with them and then they're learning with you and yeah. you're co-learning together, then the way that you you might be doing the same activity that I'm doing but we're with different groups of children, so it's going to go in different directions. Yeah, I always like to think of Lev Vygotsky when we talk about scaffolding and social interaction with children yeah. because it's an idea of you introduce them to things that are just slightly out of their reach, just ever yeah. so slightly out of their reach of being able to do. Maybe they're surprised you'll actually complete it, but then they just need your help or assistance or knowledge somewhere along the line to take them over that that finishing line and achieve what they're trying to do. I think that's a great way of always looking at it. So... And then lastly, before you wrap me up and, and oh, keep me on, up. Oh, go on, sorry. I just wanted to finally talk about technology. 
Oh, and the role that technology is playing as it's sort of creeping into the world of values more and more and more. It's taking away social... It is. And we're going to talk about a, um, a research study done by a gentleman called Kul, 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 K-U-H-L, if you want to go check it out. Um, so he ran a study in America where he took nine months, he didn't take them. He didn't, he didn't, he didn't, he didn't steal babies. They brought their own babies <laughs> to do this. Um, so he took nine-month-old babies uh, from North America and he introduced them in three different ways. So all other factors stayed the same. So the amount of time they were introduced to it, blah, 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 blah. Everything was kept the same. The only difference was the way they were taught um, Mandarin. Mandarin. Yeah. So Mandarin, Chinese language. Um, and they were introduced via, so group A had a live speaker in, someone who was native to the language to talk. Group B were introduced via um, visual. Mm -hmm. So visual talking on screen. And group C were just introduced via um, audio. Yeah. And what that, long story short, what that research project showed us was that only signs of learning taking place happened in group A, which was the native face-to-face yeah. -face interaction. Group B and group C showed nice signs of learning. Now, this is just one research project they were looking at. This is just one group of children. But what they're taking from that and other research projects have taken place that have showed similar things is that learning for the brain and the interaction with the brain and how inter it interacts with it is far greater again as we've been talking about in person so tv and and ipads and alexas don't carry the same weight and we sort of talked about this when we talked about music i say we i wasn't there for the myself music. and lucy then yourself and lucy talked about it <laughs> um technology doesn't hold the same weight it's not the same for the brain the response isn't the same no. when it happens in real life it, it I, I, we don't know why we haven't done enough research into it yet we don't have enough information we don't understand fundamentally enough yet of what is the magicness about someone being physically present versus a computer but 100 percent it's it's it, we know this through for language development as well we know that children don't learn language as well from an alexa as they do from a person. And adults are the same. People always say when they move to new countries, they learn language. If you move to France, you learn French way quicker from being involved in it day to day and interacting with other French people than you would if you sat home on one of the many apps that will teach you French. Yes. So I think fundamentally as that as the final sort of sign off, I just want to talk about don't let technology take over in the world of early years. I think it's difficult, isn't it? Because we're always told that technology is happening. Children will have to understand technology. And I do agree with that because yep. you can't throw children into a world naively expecting them to have never come across technology. No. However, like you said, being interactive with humans is far more beneficial than being interactive with a screen. Yep. And again, what I'll say is fundamental to any coder or technician who's working on, mm. on, on, on technology then their greatest skills will still be their ability to work uh, in a team and to yeah. be communicate and talk yeah. and to be able to concentrate and do all the fundamental cognitive, social, educational skills that we can provide children with. They don't have to touch iPads yet. The person who invented an iPad didn't grow up with an iPad because they weren't around. Yeah, you still have the ability to make it. Yes, very true. So, and it's the same for everything. Just because the, the, the world's greatest football player doesn't definitely have to touch a football until they're seven or eight years old. But they can still develop those brilliant physical skills, the motor yeah, skills, balance the and balance and all that perception, and then Messi can get on a touch of football. Because <laughs> he's ready. He's, he's learned all those skills. Yeah, absolutely. So I think to wrap up and sort of in a nutshell is that social learning is really, really important. And yeah. it's the way that children observe, imitate and interact with others that we need to try and do. And the question that was asked was, how do I get over the fear of embarrassment when interacting with children and my honest answer is just got to do it yeah like everything in life isn't it? yeah you've just got to accept that this is what you do and this is the best way the best thing you're going to do for these children is interact positively with them so you, you just I think, have to I think take over that massive that lies upon the people around that person as well though yeah. what are they doing to make them feel like that exactly and what are they doing to help them not feel like that because if there's anyone on our team that I felt like was scared or embarrassed but wanted to interact with children in some way disappointed in the team around them if that is the problem maybe they're completely oblivious to it yeah but do you know what I mean it's also having the understanding of why it's so important so you yeah. can say to them listen to Ben and Emily talk about how important social interaction is with children 
Because actually, if you know why you're doing something, it all becomes a little bit, you get more confidence in what you're doing. Yeah. And that's well. why I wanted to sit have this podcast because sometimes we're so innate and so ingrained and parents too of, oh, my child needs to be learning this, 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 and this, or they need to be doing these exercises. Or even sometimes why are you not sending my kid homework home from early his environments? Well, do you know what? If you want some homework and you want some really good homework... Go home and play. No, seriously, well, go home and play. Or take your preschooler home and sit him on the side when you cook tonight and talk them through the recipe and what you're cooking what and you're why doing, you're cooking it, you why you're cooking, it. cooking the chicken up like that, why you put oil in the pan before you put the... Just talk them through the process because that's as great as learning as they're going to have anything. Yes. No, it's very true. Very true. It's simple, but sometimes I think we overcomplicate it too much. Yeah. No, you're right. It's... It is essentially how we interact with children. Hmm. It's important, so just enjoy it. Whatever stimula- whatever you think would obviously stimulate a brain is going to deliver the best form of education. Because if you're excited by it, your brain's excited by it, and you're learning at the same time, then that is what's going to eventually yeah. deliver the best. And and we can say, oh, well, you know, get on with it when you get to secondary school, tough it up, you've got to do this, they'll do this. But when they're in that earlier stage, that ain't going to work. You can't just say tough, get on with it. Children learn best through play and they learn best from being social. In the in That's period. Yeah. Enough. Mic drop. Mic drop. Boom. <laughs> <laughs> no, but seriously, I, I think anybody listening to this, I just challenge you to think about how you can make your classrooms more social, how you can drive more social interaction. Yeah. Think about the individual children that we touched upon. If they have got anxiety, they are a bit. if they have different or they struggle to deal with social environments, think about how you can deliver it for them in different niche ways. But... As a whole, let's think about how we can get group conversations, group projects being done, yeah. how we can foster more and more play in a social environment. That'll no. be my challenge this week. There you go, this week's challenge. And any other questions, just drop us a message on whatever social you feel like. And um, we're, we're on think about you. <laughs> um, so yeah, I think that is us this week. We've chewed your ear off yep. for the best part of an hour. So lots to take from that, I think, and good conversation points and I think from us, like you say, it's just challenging to bring more social elements into your learning environment with all age groups worth of yeah. of children. Absolutely. Um, so that is it from us. That is. Have a fabulous week with lots of conversations. And try and stay warm. It's absolutely freezing out there. It's absolutely freezing, yeah. It, yeah. I can't believe how cold it's It's cold. a bit much for me, if I'm honest, but it's fine. Wear a hat. It's fine. Um, beat. Yeah, your feet do get cold. <laughs> Wear like five layers of socks and I'll shove them into my shoes. So, best news from this week. Um, lots of social interactions and be warm. Yep. Stay warm. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah, that's it from us. Hope you enjoyed this episode and we will see you next week for the weekly episode. Woo-hoo. Thank you again. See you later, everyone. Bye. Bye.